Good morning, everyone. Hello. Good morning. I'm Shaylin Smith. And I'm Aubrey Byer. And this is The The Resolute. Resolute. So... Okay, we've talked in the past about some of our favorite books Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, But, and my favorite book is going to come into play briefly in this story. But have you ever heard, there's a, there was a movie that came out in 2008. I'd never heard of it until looking into this. Um, It's called Camille and it stars James Franco and Sienna Miller. Oh, I feel like I've seen the movie like on Netflix or something, but I've never watched it. Yeah, it's yeah, I've never I'd never heard of it. Mm. And I looked it up to kind of see what it was about. And it's a very strange um, movie concept. Okay, It's about this couple that kind of like he's kind of on the run. They get I don't know if they get forced into this marriage or how it happens. And he just, he doesn't like her at all. I think he's marrying her out of convenience or something. So they get married and on their honeymoon, he ends up crashing while they're driving to Niagara Falls. And she um, gets flung from the car and dies. Oh my gosh. And then so he's like runs to go get help and comes back and she's like standing there and she's like, oh, hey, you know, like as if everything's fine. (laughs) Everything's normal here. (laughs) But over the course of the movie... Um, she's like basically she actually is dead. Okay. She's but like everybody ghost. can see her. Ghost. I don't know. She's like a corpse. Oh. But so she starts to decay. Oh. But then he actually falls in love with her. It's like a romantic comedy, but oh. it's clearly Slightly some disturbing. dark humor, <laughs> dark humor. Um but it's based off of uh a play mm-hmm. written by Alexander Dumas. Um, Fee, which is son in French. Mm-hmm. So he's the son of um, Alexander Dumas. And he wrote several plays. And um, this one called Camille, in the play version, it, um, it's a man that falls in love with um, a courtesan who ends up getting tuberculosis. So she is she's dying oh, during okay. their relationship. And he, of course, ends up falling in love with her. But... Um, it was really fascinating because I'd never heard of that movie or that play. And in researching this, um, Alexander Dumas Fee, or Junior, if you will, wrote many, many prominent plays. And he wrote an opera. And his father is more a little more well-known, Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Count of Monte Cristo, mm. which is my favorite book. Ooh, that's a good one. And he also wrote The Three Musketeers. I'm sure you've oh, heard yeah. of that. Yeah. I mean, everyone's heard of The Three Musketeers, uh, you know. Total classic. Because total classic. I've never read it, and I really want to yeah. read it. Yeah. I don't, I can't remember if I've read it or not. I definitely have seen various yeah. iterations of movies of The Three Musketeers. But. Yeah. There's so many add up. There's even like a Barbie Three Musketeers yeah. movie. Like, yeah. there's so many adaptations. It pops up in you know, pop culture left and right. Um, so also, have you ever heard of um, Alexander Lippmann? No. I hadn't either. But he is also a descendant hmm. of Alexander Dumas, the father. Alexander Dumas, the junior. Okay. He is the grandson of Alexander Dumas, Fee, who's the junior. 
And he was a two-time Olympic gold medalist for fencing huh. in 1908 and 1924. How interesting. I know. I thought so, you were going to say he was also a playwright. And I was like, Man, I know, it's I know. in the blood. <laughs> but it's just, it's wild because all of these incredible people that clearly have just massive talent um, are descendants of Thomas Alexander Dumas. And that is who our story is about today. So like I said, The Count of Monte Cristo is my favorite book. I have a quote from it tattooed on my wrist. And... Um, I've read the book, but I had never done a very much research into Alexander Dumas, which is why I started. That's how I actually I was I had somebody else planned, as always, for this episode. But in researching just Alexander Dumas, because I was curious. I'm like, you know, I love this book. I can't say I love it if I don't even know mm-hmm. about the person that wrote it. And in researching him, what I found even more incredible than his story was the story of his father okay and so that is the story today very cool yeah he's just a very fascinating and incredible man and um we'll just dive right in all right okay so i'm going to set the scene for you the sweltering sun beat down on their feathered hats pantalooned thighs and long coats Sweat trickled down the spines of the men, hunched over with fatigue on their horses. Shielding his eyes with his hand, Thomas peered into the distance, vast nothingness, just desert stretching ahead. He knew the only option was to keep moving forward. It was almost a hundred degrees, and the men had long since run out of water. The wind and sand whipped into his eyes, and he could hear the occasional gasp as another soldier collapsed somewhere behind him. To lag behind was to be picked off by the Bedouins who had been following them for miles. The Bedouins were these um, kind of sand tribe nomads that would um, just pillage passersby and take all their belongings. Tomah must keep moving forward. It was the only way. He couldn't believe they were on this mission to begin with. He didn't understand how this would benefit the cause, if you will. Of all of Napoleon's idiotic plans, this one was the worst. Once they made it to Damanauer, if they made it to Damanauer, Thomas uh, Thomas was done being Napoleon's puppet. He was done watching Napoleon pillage and pirate his way through the Mediterranean. It was time for a mutiny. Mm. Ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Thomas Alexander Dumas, he's got a long name, and I am going to do my best. <laughs> Thomas Alexander Dumas, David de la Palaterion, was born March 25th in 1762. And his father was also named Al- um, Alexander, but his name was Alexander Antoine David de la Palaterion. And I am going to call him Antoine because <laughs> that is a lot of French that I'm not super great at. Um, so he, um, Antoine's father was a Marquis and he, they were a very prominent family in uh, France at the time. But over the years, his father, the Marquis, had dwindled down, I think, just spending lavishly and really 
their income was just shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. After a short stint in the military, Antoine decided to move in with his brother, who had moved to Saint-Domingue, which is a Caribbean French colony. And his brother had moved there years before um, to plant a sugar plantation. Mm. And it was really prolific. Like, it was doing really well. He had, um, back then, a ton of slaves running it. And so Antoine saw this as an opportunity to kind of get out from his father's thumb a little bit and make his own way, considering the dad had started to dwindle the fortune, the family fortune. So after moving in with his brother and his brother's wife, so his sister-in-law, they end up getting into some sort of violent dispute and Antoine just takes off living in on this part is just makes me laugh because he doesn't leave the island and this is a very small community yeah especially back then before things were established very well so he's living on the same tiny island and they don't talk for almost 30 years straight (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the same island what okay. no it's very it's very wild. intentional it's not by accident you <laughs> no, know no just i'm leaving and so he left he took several slaves with him and he purchased one um a slave and her name was marie cassette dumas and bought her and made her his concubine she didn't choose this mm-hmm. he purchased this woman to be his essentially a live-in wife against her will. Wow. And with her help and the help of his slaves help they're not they weren't offering their help. He forced I want to make clear that he yeah. forced them into this. Yeah. But he planted a coffee and cacao plantation and that is where he got his income from. So Marie Cassette Dumas was a Creole woman, and she uh, gave him several children. The first baby born was Thomas Alexander, and then they continued to have two daughters after uh, Thomas Alexander was born. She also had a daughter from, she had a relationship before. I'm assuming she was probably a woman with a family, a growing family, and he just snatched her out of, you know, her life and forced her into his, is what I'm assuming. Um, so during during this time, after all three of the kids had been born, his dad passed away. Now, one of his brothers immediately jumped on the inheritance. Mm-hmm. And he's so far away, there's not a lot he could do in that moment. Well, that brother passes away. Then the brother he's estranged to jumps on the inheritance and that brother passes away, Hmm. which is odd. Got some cursed inheritance here. (laughs) (laughs) Must be. My goodness. So Alexander Antoine, or Antoine, I decided to call him. Sorry. Antoine decides, you know what? I'm claiming this inheritance. Then he doesn't have to work. You know, right now he's in a different climate than he's used to. He's been living there for 30 years. He wants to go back home. And not have to, he's thinking he's going to come back to riches and not have to do anything, which ends up being the case. It's just, you know, he's, I just don't like this guy. Yeah. So I don't want to give him any sort of yeah. um, 
props at all. He's like, I'm going to pull myself off by my bootstraps and then like go and slave a bunch of people to do literally all the manual labor for me. Yeah. Wow. Good. And work. then <laughs> and then that's like, oh, it's still too hard for me. So I'm just going to go live here and, wow. and still not have to do anything. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So in order to do this, he decides to he has to pay for passage back to France. So he sells Marie Cassette Dumas and all three of her daughters back into slavery. Oh my gosh. Okay. His own children. But he... You shouldn't sell anyone into slavery, but especially you would think there would be some sort of feelings yeah. towards his own children. Right. And he nope, just sells them all back into slavery. Wow. The only child he keeps is Thomas because he's his son. And so Thomas is, you know, a in this time period, mixed racial relationships were very rare. Yeah. And really looked down upon. Well, yeah, honestly, the, the fact that he claimed him at all is mm-hmm. really a surprise. Truly, it was, you're right, like, it, it is a surprise, and it was very unique for the time. Yeah. Um, so, in order to pay for passage back to France, on board the ship, he sells Thomas into slavery. I keep wanting to say Thomas. Thomas into slavery while he's aboard the ship. So he works for the captain. But the other reason... So at first, when I discovered that, I was just like, this guy is the worst. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, he is. It's like he, I, I'm not saying it really he is. isn't. Like, but yeah. in this case, um, what it, what that did was it allowed Toma to enter the country legally. Okay. Because he couldn't come in as a free man is what it sounds like but if he came in as a slave and then was freed i don't know how it sounds like that was part of like maybe they they had some laws about you know there was laws like that in the united states between states too um Mm -hmm. no freedmen could come across the border kind of thing but if you were across the border and then freed yeah yeah. so it's a similar sort of situation so then i was like okay that might have been a strategic move, not just yeah. him being a total butt crack. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good description. <laughs> Some people. He was the he was the sweat dripping into the crack from the beginning of the story. Oh Don't God. like this guy. <laughs> so now that he's back in Europe, he purchases back his son and then frees him. And so now Thomas Alexander Dumas Davy de la Lilla is a freed man and living in France. When Antoine gets to the estate, he decides to sell it and move into something smaller and moves into a townhouse where they're still, I mean, they're no, they're still nobility and mm. they have a townhouse. When, you know, when I think of a townhouse, I think of this tiny skinny little building, but this is, the height of luxury. Mm. So he's living really, really well and living a very wealthy lifestyle with the se- the sale of the estate. So through all of those financial um, proceeds that he's now received, Thomas ends up receiving just the best education mm. that money can buy. And he gets a nobleman's med- education as opposed to, you know, just yeah. even with his... Um, being biracial 
he still was receiving the best education. Hmm. And so that was also very rare yeah. for the time period. Yeah. Thomas was trained by the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who was a really famous mixed race Caribbean swordsman. Mm. And his story is really incredible. Um, I encourage everyone to look into the Chevalier de Saint George because really he's an incredible man. And you can see kind of, um, I mean, I think about, you know, the Alexander Lipman years and years later, Mm. the great, great grandson being an Olympic medalist for fencing and here's Toma right, yeah. being trained by the, so the best in the world. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's really cool. So Antoine poured tons of money into his son. Um, he learned, you know, several languages. He learned all of the arts. He learned, um, like I said, fencing from the best in the world. You know, I, so I can, <laughs> we stopped doing horseback riding lessons for a while because I was like, even one day a week, it was getting a little spendy. <laughs> I can't yeah. imagine just hiring the best in the yeah. world to train your child on something is, yeah. is wild. At age 22, um, t- as Tama got older, he went to the theater with a Creole woman. And she was said to be just one of the most beautiful women mm. that had been seen that night. And he starts getting harassed by this guy and his cronies. And Toma wasn't putting up with it. He was a large man. He was very tall, very strong. And so it took, I mean, you'd have to kind of at least have some cojones to even approach him. But these guys were just harassing him. And I'm, I'm like, why would you do that? You know, <laughs> he's got putting yourself to pay the bills, too. bro. What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. But you know, it all had to do with color. Right. And, uh, but he wasn't putting up with it and they tried to make him kneel and beg for his freedom. Wow. How degrading. Yeah. It's just so, so of course, per the time, um, you know, the harassers decide, Oh, well we won't press any charges against him. <laughs> when he, uh, he okay. wasn't, he wasn't even the one. All right, I know. So I just wanted to throw that little scene in there because it gives you an idea right. of the climate of the time. Right, you know. So, uh, in 1786, when Thomas an adult at this point, Antoine decides to get remarried, and he marries his one of the maids from his townhouse, and she's many years his junior. And Toma, he doesn't agree with the wedding at all. He he doesn't feel like they're a good match. He doesn't feel that he thinks she's just a gold digger, essentially. Mm. And he refuses to sign the wedding certificate as a witness. And this infuriates his dad. And he starts to shrink Toma's allowance significantly. Mm. So in this time period, if you were a working man, that was, I mean, now, you know, like, especially in America, a working person, that's honor. You know, there's a lot of honor in that. Well, back then in this time period, if you're a working person, you are lowly. Among the nobility, the whole point was to not work. 
that you have people that do that for you and you live this cush lifestyle. And so sons of aristocracy and daughters of aristocracy would receive an allowance as adults, as married people all the way until they inherit, inherit their, um, property and things like that from their parents and those allowances is what you would live on. So it's like an income, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Thomas, just, he decides to join the French army because he is just this force to be reckoned with. And he's not going to be p- stuck under his own father's thumb. Mm-hmm. And he would rather not get the allowance and make a name for himself. And um, he had a ton of honor and self-respect and he's he's just awesome so he decides to join the french army now normally well this was a very popular thing for noblemen to do but almost always the aristocracy would go in as officers Hmm. and so they weren't doing the grunt work but you get the title and the right. accolades the shiny it's little the, it's you know yeah very same, same, same idea, idea. idea. Yeah. yeah um and so but Thomas, because he was a man of color and because of his race he you have to prove four generations of nobility on your father's side and he was able to do that but because he was half black they would not allow it so instead of arguing it, he just decides I'll enlist as a private and I'll earn my own way. So he he's a nobleman, but he enlists as a private in the army to make his own way and to make his own name for himself. The dad gets super mad again that he's going to enlist as a private because how could you? You're bringing How shame upon you? me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what he, he felt like he was going to drag the family name down okay. by being a private. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so instead of acquiescing to his father's request, Toma Alexander just drops his dad's name and and goes by Toma Alexander Duma, his mm-hmm. mother's last name. Yeah. Which I'm like, that is a... That is a badass move, you know? Yeah. That is a wild move. Yeah. And so he has nothing to back him up now in regards to his patronage and his nobility other than people that already knew about it. Mm. And so his dad ends up passing away, I think, just a few weeks. It was like a few weeks or a few months after this. Wow. It was really short after, um, after this. And I didn't find anything. I don't think he received anything any inheritance i don't i don't know for sure but i couldn't find anything that said that he did so i'm assuming everything went to um his dad's new wife but wild it's yeah she's moving up in the world she made some great moves yeah well you know and this this dad antoine what an interesting character because first he you know takes um a slave for a concubine wife whatever you yeah. want to call it and then like keeps the child that one of the children and then he ends up marrying a maid which like they you know like why is he going for these characters who are in his mind so lowly to right. him you know but these are the people that he clearly yeah ends up it's interesting. having interest in oh. yeah it's very hmm. curious very bizarre he's an He's an odd guy. So sayonara to him. He's out of here. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so when uh, Thomas joins the French army, the French Revolution had just broken out. Mm. And so things are very chaotic, as yeah. you can imagine. And he gets stationed at uh, Viers Cotterets. I don't know if I said that right. Hesitation. <laughs> I don't know. Um, which is northeast of Paris. Okay. So kind of in the towards the border. And the innkeeper that ran the main inn in town was also the National Guard leader for the area. And his name was Claude Labaret. And he really needed help. That's why um, they were all sent. Well, that's why uh, Thomas was sent here. Because the great fear was happening. Mm. And what the great fear was... Um, are you familiar with the Reign of Terror in France during that time? Not really. The Reign so. of Terror is when so many of the nobility and the aristocracy were murdered. Right. The great fear, which happened during the, the same time as the Reign of Terror, was when peasants started attacking manor houses and they started doing this because they were really afraid that the there was a plot by the aristocracy to cause a famine Mm. and they were these people were already starving right and so they just started arming themselves and attacking at random and Mm. i mean it's not really random they're attacking you know manor houses where they think are going to harm them and so their fear is quite understandable but um as you can imagine that just adds to the chaos of, yeah. of everything too yeah. and so cloud labore was in charge of trying to control the great fear and put an end to people just attacking constantly and rebelling so while he was lodged there Thomas ends up falling in love with labore's daughter I know. And her name is Marie Louise. And she was a white young woman. And she really falls for him quickly. I mean, he was quite literally tall, dark, and handsome. He was he was over six feet tall. Yeah. Which back then the average male height was like five four. Yeah, I was gonna say it wasn't Napoleon. They always talk about how short he was, yeah. but he was like five seven or something. Yeah. So which is funny because it's not that short. Especially for back then, yeah. it wasn't that short. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it was <laughs> it's like a propaganda move. nowadays standards. Know, but, yeah. But, oh, yeah. It even So, huh. Yeah. Okay. Culturally, all the men were a lot shorter. So, we're that'd a be shorter. a lot. Yeah. So, imagine this. Bold like, of those guys oh. to like try to, you know, I don't know. I know. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's like, um, also, he, yeah. Yeah. So, back to the Tomas. So, uh, he and Marie Louise get engaged and get married on November 28th, 1792. And she, as, like, especially later on too, you know, they go through a lot in their marriage. They weren't married for a super long amount of time because, as you'll see, he does pass away, in my opinion, too young. Mm. But, um, but they were gone apart from each other for most of their marriage because of all of the military campaigns that he ended up having to participate in. And she stood by him through thick and thin. And she is just, I couldn't find any information on her other than that, but she's just a 
really steadfast woman. And it says a lot to me that her child would go on to do so much and his child or children, I don't know what, you know, all of them did, but I mean, we have a generational legacy left. Right. And that says a lot about her too and how she raised her kids. Especially because if there was no relation to any of that, like family fortune or nobility line or anything anymore. So yeah. Yeah. Kudos to her for being able to make all that happen. Really? Yeah. That's cool. She must have been just as remarkable. Yeah. You know, they clearly saw something in each other yeah. that they were on the same page. That's for sure. So Toma, he was an excellent soldier. Not only was he super strong, but he had all the proper training in swordsmanship. Mm-hmm. He was trained in different sorts of fighting techniques, you know, like physical fighting techniques. And he was a great marksman with guns Mm. so he had like a set of pistols that he would practice with and he was he was a a really good shot at one point in uh, 1792 so that's the later i mean this must have been right after they got married but he was um scouting with only a party of four other soldiers and they were able to capture 12 enemy soldiers successfully wow yeah with no deaths like they captured them and any time that he could sit, he didn't have to resort to like a violent or, you know, deadly technique. He would. He would always try first to use methods that weren't deadly. And then he would use deadly force when needed. And he was also just really honorable in the sense that if you were captured, he he obeyed the laws of you know, respecting your, your, um, prisoners and he didn't pillage, you know, he was, he would constantly hold his, um, soldiers to the highest level of honor as well and would gravely reprimand any man under his authority that was doing anything outside of what he expected. So common practice at the time under Napoleon's leadership was they would be really harassing the people that they were capturing um in every sort of physical way and you know stealing i mean napoleon commandeered so many piece antique piece or antique um ancient Hmm. writing artwork he would bring napoleon would bring along with him experts on artwork and sculptures so that they could categorize the things that he was pillaging. Mm. He was basically a titled pirate. And it was ab- he was absolutely allowed yeah. to get away with it. Yeah. And it's just so disgusting. Yeah. He he was a terrible person. He did some great mil- military maneuvers um as we'll see later on but just a really terrible person and he didn't have the loyalty of his men mm. the way that uh, Toma did, but instead he would buy their loyalty. So he would share in the plunder and pay the men well. Um, so he was put in charge of what was called the Black Legion. And this was a specialized division of really skilled soldiers who were black. 
And so initially, <laughs> it I really, know, it really was. Okay, it was. We're let, like, we're gonna call this one. You're like, you ready, black, boys? Know, the Black clever. Legion. Oh, okay. Very clever. So, uh, so, so smart. <laughs> so initially, they, you know, would kind of categorize him in a way of, oh well, he's a good soldier, but he's good enough to lead this right. division because clearly, you know, yeah, it, it's just another way to categorize him. And to try to not separate let him, yeah, to separate other, him, yeah, right, and to not, you know, really let him progress too far, right. But that quickly goes out the door in the sense that he really, regardless of his coloring at the time, uh, not that he changed, but you know, um, during that time period, even so, he ends up really excelling and as you'll see he ends up becoming the brigadier general in uh 1793 and then he is the placed as the commander in chief for several occupations during this time period so the commander in chief you know there's many different commanders there's many different brigadier generals but if you're going to an outpost of you know we're going to have you run this occupation there might be other generals that are the same rank as you so they put one in charge so that's what like the commander-in-chief is essentially it's like even though there's other um officers or generals that might have the same title as you you're the one in charge of that campaign wow so they would divvy it up kind of by campaign yeah so he was the commander-in-chief on several occupations and this was actually after the black legion ended up being disbanded and they just dispersed the soldiers as needed. Yeah. So it had nothing to do with race or color or anything at this point. Interesting. That's he yeah. was just really good, and yeah. they it was finally being valued. One of these occupations, including taking command of, it was called the Army of the Alps. So this is in you know northern France. You're reaching that border, the Alps are way up there and these are soldiers that they haven't trained for this we're talking climbing ice cliffs and things like that and Mm -hmm. this is in the 1700s and they would put like crampons which are you know what crampons are yeah um, like the little covers for your shoe yeah for like gripping on the ice and um they're climbing these ice cliffs and trying to get to this pass to overtake an army that is probably more equipped they've been established there for a while yeah and they do it successfully that's amazing it's incredible which says a lot about his leadership yeah that he's able to plan that and execute it and they capture over a thousand prisoners (laughs) yeah a thousand prisoners and i don't know how many were sent there yeah but this is in you know just wild conditions too things just really impressive at this point he's now titled general thomas alexander dumas so yes he gains control of little saint bernard pass on the french piedmont border and he was very disciplined like i said before and he demanded that of his troops which is why when they captured those 1000 people they didn't kill a thousand prisoners they captured them held them as prisoners and 
um, did what was appropriate. He was did not allow any looting. You had to treat the locals well. You had to offer them, you know, good accommodations and food as best that they were able. And you, he would only kill if needed. And uh, anyway, I know I already said that, but just saying it again. So uh, September in 1794, they welcome, he and Marie welcome their first baby. And it has the cutest name, Marie Alexandrine. A couple years after that, he's, uh, Thomas is sent to Milan to serve under Napoleon Bonaparte. So at this point, Napoleon had heard about this black commander that was rising up through the ranks and he was just having victory after victory after victory. And, you know, it's kind of that cockfight mentality of who is this guy? And so initially, um, you know, he is really testing, kind of testing Tomah to see what he's made of. And he sends him on these, these little things to just kind of keep an eye on him. And, um, he's noticed right away. Napoleon noticed that everybody respected this man. And as I, as you can imagine, I mean, he's this six foot tall man and Napoleon's this, you know, little shrimp by comparison and doesn't have the same sort of respect from his men. So even though he buys their loyalty it's just not the same and i think that was another just kind of thorn in napoleon's side when it comes to uh thomas alexander dumas event as with their tactics being so different they really grew to despise each other Mm. and napoleon he would um he was really threatened by dumas and his continued progress and all the titles that he was gaining okay so dumas was put in charge of a division besieging austrian troops in mantua which is in northern italy and he led the division to halt the austrian reinforcements so they couldn't get through and this was just a huge success for Dumas and um, all of his work led to the city surrendering instead of just a bloodbath and a report was sent out to Napoleon and because I mean there was still a lot of action but it wasn't you know a huge massacre and in the report to Napoleon um from one of the soldiers underneath Dumas, but he was a Napoleon um, henchman, essentially. He was just basically saying that Dumas sat and did nothing while everybody else did the work. And when Dumas had heard about this, I don't have the exact quote, but he was basically like, I wish upon him to do nothing in the fashion that I did. And because if that were the case, he would shit his pants. That's <laughs> basically what he said. Like, the, I wish he could do the nothing yeah. I did. Because yeah. if that were the case, he wouldn't be able to handle it, you know? Because he clearly did not do nothing. Yeah. But Napoleon, even though knowing that these successes were Dumas, he would leave Dumas out of his reports 
when he would send them on to higher ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any sort of battle report, he would not give Dumas credit for. Wow. And this led to Dumas being starting to be given commands that were well beneath his rank. And so this had nothing to do with his race and color. Well, I think that was part of why Napoleon disliked him. Right. But, you know, he was given these commands because Napoleon was sabotaging his reputation as well. Hmm. And so, you know, he was just very threatened by him. And anything he could, any way that he could knock Dumas down, he would. Yeah. During one of his campaigns where Dumas was driving the Austrians north, the Austrians started calling him the Black Devil. And they were he became so renowned even to the enemy that in negotiations and things like that the um, the austrians thought dumas was the one that was in charge oh so they would that's interesting he would be standing there next to to napoleon and they would ask him questions about negotiations and you know i could just imagine little napoleon be like um excuse me (laughs) pardon me sir i'm in charge here you know but they would approach him instead that's really interesting it makes it gives me such a grin because i'm like that's right you little shrimp you know (laughs) you know how embarrassing yeah like imagine that well especially yeah again (laughs) with like going back to these people who you consider to be so lowly yeah and these outsiders are like oh yeah he's in charge right and you're like ha ha dare you (laughs) like so after napoleon started to realize okay he he's the one that everybody is looking to Mm. he tries to kind of turn the relationship around Mm -hmm. and befriend him and so he starts sending him little gifts he sends him like a new set of pistols and in my mind i'm like he's thinking keep your enemies closer or something you know because you know he didn't those feelings weren't genuine i think he was just trying to he was trying to backtrack and yeah oh i've made the maybe i should be on the right side of toma (sighs) dang I would not be accepting any pistols from somebody like that. Like, those are going to backfire on you or something crazy. Literally. (laughs) You're going to go to use them and, like, they blow up in your face. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? Well, I do wonder later on in the story if there was some sabotage from Napoleon. Hmm. There's no proof. Right. But I question it. Um, So the year before all this takes place, he and his wife welcome their second baby and this little girl, she only lives for one year, which is so sad. And and knowing that Marie Louise is having to deal with this alone. Yeah. yeah I'm sure I'm sure she had ladies around her and things like that, but it's so sad. And so that little baby's name was Louise Alexandrine. In 1798, this is when things get kind of crazy. I mean, it's been crazy, but they he ends up getting stationed in Toulon, uh, France, but it's for an unknown assignment. So, I, and I don't know if I'm saying that right. Again, I apologize. But Toulon, France is in the southeastern portion of France and it's on the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. And when he gets there, there is a massive armada, tons of ships, warships in the harbor ready to go 
He still doesn't, no one is told the destination. They know that they're going to Malta, which is a small uh, island south of Italy. And they're supposed to secure that and they won't receive further information until they do that. So all these ships head out and they conquer Malta pretty quickly. Malta, it really is quite small. And when you imagine, you know, a thousand ships, maybe not that many, probably not. Maybe I'm thinking of the sacking of Troy, (laughs) but you know, hundreds of ships taking over it's you can see that it would be taken over pretty quickly yeah and here napoleon tells them their true goal which was to take over egypt Mm. and their purpose his purpose in that was to stop europe from having any sort of like free trading abilities with india Mm. and so he wanted to be able to control that through having uh taken over the land so they head out east from malta and that's a it's about halfway it's the halfway point and they land in the port of alexandria and i tried looking up um what this would have looked like back in the day and it's kind of this like open c-shaped um port from what i could find but they had high walls they had built these really high walls to prevent a siege but this is Thomas Alexander Dumas we're talking about he's gonna make it over that wall so they do they make it over the wall and they take over the city and again he is starting to just he doesn't like the tactics Napoleon is using he doesn't agree with his methods and this is when he really starts to, I think this was, you know, he hadn't worked under him for very long and already he's feeling like this is, I'm not doing this, you know, mm. this is wrong. Yeah. So they take the city and Napoleon um, is continuing to just sack everywhere. He's stealing hordes of gold that are found jewels artifacts this is um later on in this war the this is where the rosetta stone is found oh and this is probably why there's so this is the beginning of why there's so many egyptian artifacts in france right is this was the beginning of like a major major um infiltration of french influence how in, interesting in Egypt. wow mm-hmm. okay sorry okay. <laughs> long pause don't mind me oh that's so interesting dang my brain is like what i know it's well and when you imagine i like looking this stuff on a map because i want to think okay yeah this is the 1700s you're getting on a ship from france yeah you're sailing across the mediterranean sea yeah stopping in a city that you're having to fight for or like an island that you're having to fight for and then continuing on your journey and now this is in july yeah. when they reach alexandria so this is not 
have you ever been in the desert in the summertime? No. It's a nightmare. It sounds like a nightmare. I mean, (laughs) it's awful. I've been to like Phoenix in the summertime and it is too hot. It's too hot. It shouldn't. It just. No. People aren't supposed to be there. You know what I mean? No. 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 It's just. And then. You know, it's not like he had air conditioning places yeah. he could like pop in real quick and to cool, cool off. off. Yeah. <laughs> so they just, you know, they didn't have enough supplies. There wasn't proper equipment. There wasn't enough water. And again, but Napoleon is just pushing on. We're going to Cairo. We're going to Cairo. We're taking it over. And that's his plan. So when they finally reach Damenhauer, which is from the beginning of the story, that's where they were heading. Um, they, this was 40 miles from Alexandria. They're on horseback. You know, hopefully most of them are on horseback. And like I was saying at the beginning, if you fell behind, the Bedouins would kill you. They would have like these scythes and they were following it just trailing behind this army that's like so nipping people off and then some of the men would complete suicide because they would rather die by their own hand than face the dehydration that they were all facing because Mm. dehydration i mean we've encountered that a few times through these some of these stories and it just sounds awful yeah and so i can only imagine you know so um when they get to Damenhauer, several of the other generals come up to Dumas and they are they are venting their frustration about the conditions that everybody's in, Napoleon's leadership or lack of it, and they talk about refusing to go beyond Cairo. At this point, they feel they kind of have to get to Cairo. Because they need to replenish supplies yeah. before they can even have a chance to make it back. Yeah, just and to if they get to Cairo, they can take the Nile yeah. River back to the Mediterranean, I think was their hope. Um, yeah, just to survive, exactly. And so Dumas, is he's agreeing with everything that they're saying. And they decide when they get to Cairo, they're all going to, going to refuse to go farther. So before they reach Cairo, they... Um, have what's known as the Battle of the Pyramids. And so this is several weeks in to, since they landed in Alexandria. And it ends up being a major success. Uh, they took the city of Mbabe, which is across the Nile from the Great Pyramids, but it's called the Battle of the Pyramids because you can see them from that city. And they, one of the things, and this is where Napoleon had good battle techniques, but, you know, he was just a terrible man. And um, he would do, it's called the divisional square tactic, Uh but you make a circle of men and then you have your shields and then you have, it's really effective for like cavalry running at you, but you make this big circle of soldiers. And so some have like spears held low medium high oh so you're like a porcupine yeah three oh yes okay it was 300 yeah Yeah. so um in this case they made like this big square shape and that was you know back then kind of the common practice was like an uh, an infantry line where you're all just standing in a line which 
again being on the other side (laughs) of it now it's easy to laugh at it and just be like that is a terrible tactic yeah but um napoleon would use some of these other methods that were really effective and it worked and that's how they were able to take the city Hmm. so smart though smart um in october dumas led a charge into the al azhar mosque and in this mosque there was um they were planning these anti-french plots were happening and these revolt plans were taking place and so there was a charge um he led the charge to go in and you know kill some of the people i'm sure but to capture it basically and put an end to any plans of a revolt and he was so successful at that napoleon um said and i quote i shall have a painting made of the taking of the grand mosque dumas you have already posed as the central figure. And 11 years later, he does have this painting made, but he has a white guy leading it. Are you for real? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I know. So, <laughs> I wow. Know. Love that. I know. He just, yeah. It's messed up. I know. Well, and then I wonder, you know, I mean, there, there's really good records of all of these battles, but it also makes you wonder how many more because napoleon wasn't reporting his involvement in so many right so there's has to be so many more things during this time period that were successful because of thomas alexander dumas so dumas um napoleon finds out about this mutinous conversation that dumas and the other generals were having and but there's no proof and you know, so in the end, Dumas just asks him if he can go back to France. Yeah. And Napoleon agrees. I mean, I I think he's fine. He's ready to be rid of him, too. Yeah. You know, so at this point, he couldn't leave until March the following year. And when he is ready to go, he boards. Um, it was called a little it was a little ship called the Belle Maltese. And there was many other wounded soldiers, some passengers. Um, he had purchased Dumas had purchased 4,000 pounds of coffee to bring back with him and 11 Arabian horses. So he had a couple stallions and then a couple fillies that he was going to breed. Wow. When he got back. Very smart. Very smart. And like Arabian horses, those were, I mean, so exquisite and so rare, Mm -hmm. you know? So this is where I'm, I, I just speculate that Napoleon sabotaged somehow. And maybe it's just bad luck. Yeah. But on as they're heading back, the ship begins to sink. So they are throwing cargo overboard left and right to lighten the load. And they're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. That is one of my nightmares. And... Um, he ends up having to throw like he throws his horses over all the coffee that he had purchased um tons of cargo just sent overboard and he ends up i mean keeping you know a minimal amount of things but they do make it an emergency landing in taranto which is kind of in the boot part of italy okay and it was um considered the uh, kingdom of naples at the time and thinking that it was occupied by some of the French allies because they had 
the last that they had heard the allies had taken over this area well that had been reversed so they were at least thinking okay well we'll get some help you know instead they were told that they needed to be quarantined to make sure that they weren't bringing any diseases with them and instead they were all imprisoned oh and they were almost all of their things were taken and they were ended up being imprisoned there for two years his wife has heard nothing the last she knew he was leaving france for an unknown destination right she didn't know anything else yeah and so she's back home with two little babes and just oh i can't imagine that oh the stress yeah oh my gosh and she has no income because she's not receiving anything yeah he's just been gone and disappeared so if you've if you have not read the count of monte cristo everybody i highly highly recommend it you can see a lot of um a lot of his father's story was put into alexander dumas book oh interesting just in like various ways you know just parts of it left and right like just the traveling across the mediterranean and then being stuck in a prison yeah for no particular you know like yeah oh just in or um illegally imprisoned i guess or you know like it's just interesting very interesting so uh during this time you know they're fed very little they they were allowed he and some of the other like there's a couple other generals and then like i said some wounded soldiers they were allowed to meet in a courtyard once a day for an hour a day other than that they were in their cells wow 100 percent of the time and you know this isn't american prison cells this is old dingy stone cells with water random water leaking a straw bed and just bad conditions drafty i'm sure you know malnutrition really started to take its toll and his bot his you know he was as we'll say a side of beef (laughs) his side of beef (laughs) body really started to whittle down and just shrink away and he um he he never regains his physical health Mm. after this imprisonment he was allowed to keep the money that he brought with him which i thought was really interesting yeah i don't really know why they would do that you know yeah like for yeah like why just take it yeah yeah Yeah. i know it's really strange Hmm. but with that he was able to at least buy food for himself Okay. so he was probably eating at least maybe a little better than he would have without having that money but again it's it's odd that they didn't just confiscate it yeah they took everything else so i don't know i don't understand the mentality there um, the prison guards ignored his request to speak to any French ambassador or any anybody. And he was given just little bits of food until he started buying them. And one time he's given a biscuit and some wine and he eats them and he just collapses to the, the ground, writhing in pain. Mm. Like 
extreme pain. He starts vomiting and there's something like very wrong. Part of, he started to like lose sight in one of his eyes. Oh my gosh. And his face started to paralyze. Yeah. What? I know. Oof. He also, the, this doctor came in and when he saw that Dumas was alive, it just, there was a look on the doctor's face that Dumas later recalls as being one of shock that he was alive, which tells him that the doc, that he really felt like somebody had poisoned him and that the doctor clearly was in on it. Yeah. Isn't that terrifying? Yeah. They didn't adjust for his size, maybe. That's awful. I bet you're right. Got all these shrimps running around. (laughs) This will do it. I bet you're right, though. Oh, man. I didn't even think about that. But he's in prison, so it's like, why? Because they don't want it to look intentional. Mm. Like, I think it was a way to get rid of him. But not not have been the cause of it. And then, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about that, though. That That is probably why he survived is because he's so big. They probably didn't give him enough. Yeah. Oh, that poor man. Oh, my gosh. So after visiting, the doctor would give him these remedies, quote, unquote. And um, Dumas just didn't listen to anything the doctor said. As soon as he left the room, anything the doctor gave him, he tossed out. and. Smart. Yeah, very smart. He I mean, it like, saved. Mm. I'm sure it saved yeah. his life. Yeah. The so, the doctor so, keeps coming back like oh, he's, oh, he's like he's still alive. What the heck? How Damn it! <laughs> oh, so um, at some point he you know really started to feel very hopeless. I mean, he's in there for two years, but some French allies he he had like this tiny little window where he could like barely peek out, um, and see part of the sky some French allies started sneaking things into his cell to like encourage him. One was a medicine book and the section on poisoning was underlined, which confirmed his suspicions. Yeah. And then they gave him food. They gave him, um, at later on, they were able to like sneak in some medicine and some chocolate. And the medicine was like specifically for poison poisoning. And, all this really started to give him new hope. Yeah. And so, you know, his physical condition didn't improve any really other than he survived, you know. Um, but his mental condition really yeah. he started to feel There's hopeful. somebody out there helping me out. Mm-hmm. And somebody doesn't want me dead. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. So during that whole time, Marie Louise is just she's lobbied to the government several times to try to get help finding her husband mm. and no one will help her which makes me think that they either napoleon either told them that he was dead yeah because he was a praised right. soldier yeah or it was, it was some something kind of he did some yeah. yes and that's where i think clear i think the poisoning yeah. was targeted specifically for him right and i do wonder if napoleon was behind it or i mean he is a prominent french soldier so it could have just been that too but even the sinking of the ship and that can happen too but some of these things I'm like just... all these things can happen but they can also happen intentionally mm-hmm. you know yeah hmm. so 
Meanwhile, Napoleon returns to Paris and he gains power quickly. And finally, in March of 1801, the the French had a major victory and Dumas was released at last. But this is two years later. Hmm. Napoleon had been back in Paris and there were certain things that Napoleon started to reinstate that really worked against Dumas and his circumstances even after he was released. One, he started promoting slavery again. Two, interracial um, marriages, which had been um, legalized years before, was now illegal again. And anyone of color had to move out of the city they couldn't live within a certain area of paris wow that is interesting yeah when dumas is finally reunited with marie louise they were actually he um requested a an exception so that they could stay within like the city limits Mm. and keep their home because he they owned their home yeah and um, he that does get approved. So I'm How, assuming Napoleon so had nothing to do with that yeah. because he wouldn't have approved that. I know. It's and this they wouldn't even be where they were yeah. with the victories that they had right. if it wasn't for this man. Right. And it's right. Yeah. Like it's so fascinating to see like again you, these people that you consider to be so beneath you but like they literally you wouldn't be where they right. are yeah and to but especially for for uh dumas personally to be working with these people who all this time their goal was to reinstate you know the slavery yeah. the yes. segregations and everything like that yeah. it's just well because that didn't come out until like that those sentiments weren't made prominent until napoleon had the power he needed in order to reinstate that yeah so it's just i don't know i I can't imagine like what that would feel like to yeah be working with somebody like that essentially you know yeah that's terrible so um sorry so napoleon repeatedly refused Dumas his his Dumas request for his back pay during his years of imprisonment because mm. he was a prisoner of war right and they had legalities around that yeah back then but he refused and he also wouldn't grant Dumas a, a new military position yeah clearly Dumas wasn't in a condition to be the soldier he was before but he could have been commissioned into, you know, another position in the military and Napoleon refused. And so at this point, they were pretty destitute, he and his wife. In 1802 is when his son was born, hmm. his one and only son, Alexander Dumas. And um, the family really struggled with severe poverty Mm. after at this point and so that was only in that was in 1802 and in 1806 little baby alexander dumas was just like three and a half years old when his father thomas alexander dumas died of stomach cancer on february 26th 
1806. Wow. It's so sad because he he only got a few years with his family yeah. after his imprisonment yeah. and then dies. And I wonder if it had to do with that poisoning too. Yeah. You know, caused the some effects of it for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It's really sad. I mean, he, he also went like partially deaf in one ear and you know, he was just never the same. Right. So at this point, Marie Louise ends up working in a tobacconist shop to provide for her family. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they just process tobacco or create, you know, like, I, I don't really know what a tobacconist shop is. It has something to do with tobacco. Um, and she never received widow's pay for her husband, who was a general. Wow. Yeah. Her son, Alexander Dumas, was received no sec no primary secondary no education because they couldn't afford it and um regardless he would go on to write some of the most famous works How known today yeah wow wow i know that's incredible and just the legacy yeah. left by this man is incredible so that is that is i mean that has a sad ending but he's also just an incredible human being yeah that is the incredible story of thomas alexander dumas well thank you for sharing you are welcome that was yeah that was really good he persevered through so much even though there were so many people who would have you know stopped him from i know succeeding for so many reasons too you know just his one being from a different nation yeah initially yeah two being a black man in a white man's world and then on top of that being in a marriage that was unprecedented for the time and still rising above all of that yeah to just be a, such an incredible historical figure yeah because it's you know i mean it's hard just to do one piece of that yeah. let alone all of what he accomplished together is right. just really cool yeah I would like to do a shout out to one of my besties, Candace, because she is an incredible woman and bought me the most beautiful copy of The Count of Monte Cristo that exists and kings to you, Candace. And then we have a Patreon shout out too. Uh, shout out to our newest Patreon member, Andrea. She joined our Zamperini tier. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and um, we have a little surprise for all y'all and on October 15th we're going to be doing a mini merch giveaway. So we've got some fun things up our sleeve to give away to you guys and we'll be doing a drawing for that like I said October 15th for all of our Spotify monthly supporters or our Patreon members. So if you're interested in becoming a monthly supporter through Spotify, um, go to your Spotify account and figure it out on there. (laughs) I'm not sure how to do that yet. Um, And then um, for our Patreon, we have three different tiers and uh, they're really cool. They each have different benefits as well. So head on over to patreon.com. You can become a supporter there. And... 
yeah. yeah and if you're not able to support us financially at this time that's okay uh, we appreciate anybody sharing the podcast telling their friends about it um letting people know about it that's really helpful to us too and we just want more and more people to be able to hear our podcast so thank you so much for listening uh we will see you next week we'll see you denmark canada new zealand we see you we see we you. see you guys <laughs> listening to our podcast so yeah we'll see you guys next week bye bye <laughs>